Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. A friend of mine uh, who is a published poet, he's called Kelvin, and he emailed me a poem quite a while back now, maybe a couple of years ago, by Peter Riley, a British poet who I wasn't familiar with, but I loved the poem. And so I, I thought I'd, I'd share it with you today. Now, Kelvin is, is a, a, a big fan of, of Peter Riley and knows a lot more about it than me, so it probably should be him doing this. But I'm just from my little corner of Riley-esque knowledge, I'm uh, going to tell you about... Well, you know what? You know the score. So, OK, so th- the poem is called The Little Watercolour at Sligo. So it's about a painting. It's um, I've mentioned on these podcasts before the ekphrasis, this idea of writing a poem about a visual piece of art. I have not seen the painting. I don't feel I need it. I think there's enough in this poem for me. But if you want to check it out, I don't. All I know is it's the little watercolour at Sligo. <laughs> it probably isn't called that. And maybe that's a way of preventing us from just Google imaging. Anyway, here we go. I think you'll like it. So, the little watercolour at Sligo. So, little watercolour. It's very understated, isn't it? I don't want to do down the genre of watercolour, but it's not... It's not the Premier League of oil painting, I think, in a lot of people's consciousness. So a little watercolour, and it's at Sligo. Now, I've had great times in Sligo, but it's not one of the world's art capitals. It's not, it's not Paris and it's not New York. So we get the idea that we're dealing with a sort of low-profile painting here, I think. But it's a big enough event to have a poem written about it. So there's a bit of contrast. We know we're going to be sort of have our feet on the ground, but we feel that there's something big going to happen as well because it's a little watercolour at Sligo, but it's also the title of a poem. It's just five three-line stanzas, but there's a lot in it, I think. I'm just going to read you the first stanza, and it ends mid-sentence, so brace yourself for a, a jolting finish. The point of pain at which the voice either cracks or cruises. The little fat man, and then that sentence continues into the next next stanza. But let's just look at the first sentence. Um, It's beautiful, isn't it? Bookended with alliteration. The point of pain at which the voice either cracks or cruises. And... Already there's a sort of tension in this poem. And for me, an excitement. That thing when you, I don't know how many of you try to sing. I have not got the best voice ever, but I love to sing. I've had four number one records, so come on. But I love to sing. And sometimes it just comes out better. And that risk that you take when you go for the big note and when it happens, when it doesn't crack, when you cruise into it, it's a beautiful thing. And I suppose you could expand that into any any risk that you take. So the, the cruising that one achieves occasionally in life would seem less glorious 
without the possibility of cracking. That seems to give it added excitement. It's like the possibility, as it says, the point of pain at which the voice either cracks or cruises, the possibility of that pain, when it doesn't happen, illuminates what does happen. As a stand-up comedian, it happens a lot. There are just nights when you find what I believe jazz musicians and what Jack Kerouac in um, On The Road calls it. Nights when you are illuminated, when everything seems to work. And it's like the jokes are coming out faster than you've thought of them. That is, I think, we're talking about that. We're talking about sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes it does. And how thrilling that risk is. That's what, where I feel we're at at this, at this point. Okay, next couple of stanzas. We're coming off the little fat man, remember. The little fat man makes it. So I'm guessing this is a little fat man who's in the painting. The painting is by Jack B. Yates, I understand, because Peter Riley did a series of poems about the paintings of Jack B. Yeats. Jack B. Yeats being the, the artist brother of W.B. Yeats, the poet. Okay, here goes. The little fat man makes it, whoever he is, drunk but not too drunk in village night, his mouth like a typographical O. He stops to sing. His head rises, his arms fall, and it works. He cruises out across time. I find it thrilling. He makes it, whoever he is. And we're hammering home the little fat man's anonymity in this little watercolour at Sligo. But he makes it, whoever he is. There's a suggestion also, I think, that he doesn't always make it. But tonight... He does. This is one of those nights. And drunk, but not too drunk, in village night. It seems the right setting to find that cruising moment. Because when we think about, well, performance, for example, striving for your best stuff in front of a crowd, it's quite restricting and restraining. But if you've had a few drinks and you're in village night, and I'm assuming village night is a less uptight place than village day, that you have some of the security of shadow and also soothing alcohol. It reminds me of Maria Callas, the very famous opera singer, said that the secret of her success was to treat every performance like a rehearsal. And that is a piece of wisdom, I think. So don't worry about it. Don't, don't, you know, the way when people get picked to play football for England, they've been brilliant for their clubs. And when they play for England, they play like you drive when there's a police car in your rear view mirror. You're uptight. This is about a little fat man who's had a little drink. It's night time. He's enjoying himself. He goes for the big note. And he just cruises and makes it. And what I like about this is it says his mouth like a typographical O. Now, a typographical O is obviously a printed 
O, so a uniform, perfect O, not a sort of idiosyncratic O like you might find in handwriting and like you might expect to find in the little fat man. You might expect his mouth to look not quite classically O. You might expect to see a little bit of human frailty in this little fat man in the village night who's had a drink or two. It makes me think there's a suggestion of some proper technique or training in this guy. And I love that. I love that he has been trained. And and maybe, I don't think I'm imposing this. This is a typographical, oh, that's when you see proper singers, trained singers sing, their mouths form that shape for certain sounds. And I like the idea that, that that suggests to me some sort of failed dream in the past, some idea of being a singer, what you might call, though you wouldn't call it in the context of this poem, a proper singer, a professional singer. But now he sings instead in the village night with a a few beers in him. Peter Riley, I, I read on the back of Passing Measures, a collection of poems by Peter Riley, which I have in my hand in and in which this poem appears. And it says that he considers his poems to be a meditative construct. So something that he builds and at which the reader looks at and and soaks up and investigates. And that's true of every poem to some extent, I think. But I think he particularly strives for that. He says in the same, well, it's said of him in the same blurb, that he's chiefly interested in making a poetry which is available rather than accessible, which is an interesting quote. I think it means he wants you to do a bit of work. And as I've said in these podcasts before, I think what the reader puts into a poem is almost as important as what the, the writer puts in. It's, it's interactive reading poetry. So anyway, this typographical, I'll be honest with you, in my meditation on this particular construct of Peter Riley, I did think about a man who I used to drink in the same pub as back in Birmingham, a man called Irish Tony, who would have to be persuaded. We'd all be singing around the piano. He had to be persuaded to get up and sing, although he clearly wanted to. And he had a beautiful tenor voice. And I always used to think, you know, I bet Irish Tony had dreams of singing in in grander settings than this pub. And I'm kind of finding him in in the little fat man in this poem. I think it's okay to put in a bit of your own autobiography into a, a poem, as long as you don't force it in. I think it's almost impossible not to do that. I like that he stops to sing. It's like it's like he's the normal, this guy's normal is put on hold and this is the moment when he does something special. So we get the switch from normal to special. He stops to sing. And then we get this lovely sort of triplet of technique his head rises his arms fall and it works and those three words and it works i find incredibly satisfying 
I don't know why, but there's something exhilarating about it. Those times, whatever it is, when it works, is just fabulous. And as it says, he cruises out across time. I guess he cruises out across time because he's been immortalised in, in the painting that, that Riley has seen and also in this poem. And so he's cruising and that moment is frozen in time. It's as if we can still hear him, but his golden moment is it's there. And so he does, he cruises out across time to us. Okay, the concluding two stanzas go like this. By the way, I love the idea of that singer. We've caught him on a good night, and so he will exist in perpetual cruise now. That's, God, that's beautiful. Okay, last two stanzas. Nameless and small, so we're hammering that home again. Nameless and small. He sails a stranger's psyche, saying, cast your care crown. This is success. This is being. This is where love fastens us to the earth and time sees to the rest. Okay. So, nameless and small. Again, the, the anonymity if you like, of this, of this guy. And then more alliteration. He sails a stranger's psyche, saying, and we are the stranger. Anyone who looked at that painting or who reads this poem, I think we are the stranger. And now he's, he's currently sailing my psyche because I'm thinking about him. I'm thinking about what he's done, I'm thinking about how he must feel, how he must sound, and I'm thinking about how it is when you beat the crack and hit the cruise in life. And then what he says is, cast your care crown. Now, care is put in brackets here, and at first I thought it might be added as a um, just another bit of alliteration cast your care crown i think it's because cast your crown is a that's an image from the book of revelations i i'm i think riley is a bloke who knows everything so he would know that and it's a bit where where jesus comes again all the kings or 24 of them i think gather around him and they just take their crowns off and throw them at his feet like you know you're you're the man. We, the idea of being a king now seems irrelevant compared to your majesty. But he's asking us to cast our care crown, just all the things that you worry about, all the things maybe that stop us from taking that risk, from risking crack or cruise, all the cruises we've missed out on because we haven't risked the cracks. He's saying, now, cast your care crown. And then he goes on, this is success. And it's counterintuitive that because we associate success with fame, with being at the top of your profession in some way, not being 
a little fat guy singing half drunk in the village night. But of course, that is what it's about. It doesn't need to be an enormous audience, although this guy has been given one by Jack B. Yates and then by Riley. I used to do, I'm sorry, I'm going to chuck in a bit more autobiography. I used to host two regular weekly gigs in Birmingham in rooms that held less than 300 people. And they were full every week. And I did it for about a year and a half. And it was called the 4X Cabaret. And I have done nothing in my career, including television series and great big stand-up tours and number one records, etc. I have done nothing that gave me the unadulterated joy of those nights in those small rooms above pubs in Birmingham when it was just starting to happen. It's not about how other people perceive the success. It's about how it feels, is what this seems to say. I mean, for example, I'm prouder of this poetry podcast than I am of, off the top of my head, a panel show that I hosted for seven years on BBC One. So... It's about how it feels. It's about the real, I suppose, what makes you feel glorious. And this is success. This is being. This is where love fastens us to the earth. And that may be slightly confusing because I sort of think someone who cruises, they sort of rise up from the earth. They are no longer tethered or fastened to the earth. But I think what's being said is that he's fastened to the earth maybe in that he's fully connected to the real and to the true. We're talking about the sort of art of the people here, not the art that appears in grand galleries or at the Royal Opera House. Just It's informed by craft, a typographical O. It doesn't just happen. But there is not enough technique, not enough ambition, uh, not enough formality to erase the human and the love in this, in this singing. So this is success. This is being, this is where love fastens us to the earth. Let me tell you, I was, I was in a church and a little old lady came and stood next to me and she was, I don't want to say she was in rags, but she was perhaps homeless, but certainly struggling materially. And she stood next to me and sat next to me and knelt next to me. And then there was a, a, a hymn and she sang and it was absolutely beautiful. Her voice was heavenly and It meant more to me than seeing someone do it at the Royal Opera House because I just, it was really like she was in touch with something. It's like that Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem, The Aeolian Harp. I didn't know what one of those was when I first read the poem. And it's like a a harp, a little harp that you put on your windowsill and um, the wind plays it. And this woman, it felt like, she almost wasn't responsible for this sound. Like she tuned into something bigger. And this guy seems to have just through love 
not through ambition or yearning for fame. Love has fastened him to the earth and it's fastened him to the earth also in that he has, you know, the painter and the poet have fastened him to the earth in that they've sort of made him immortal. He's fastened to the earth in that he cannot die now. He will last forever. We will see him in his moment of cruise and read about him in this poem and feel him in his moment of cruise as long as we exist. It's brilliant. I, 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 love, I love this poem. By the way, that ending, this is where love fastens us to the earth and time ceases to the rest. In this little collection of poems about Jack B. Yeats's paintings, they all end with what time does or what time doesn't do. But in this case, I think time ceases to the rest because of the immortalization of this little fat man. And we, the audience of the painting or the poem, replace not only the audience in the village night, but we continue to replace the previous audience of the painting and the poem. So it goes on and on, and that singer has been fastened to the earth. And like I say, he cruises forever, which is a tremendous gift to be given him by the painter and the poet. I really like it. I know you are busy people. I'd love to share another, very quickly, another Peter Riley poem with you, mainly because I think it's hard to shrug off the idea of what poetry is and what poetry should be and what poetry does and the norms of poetry. But occasionally you see a poet who's just doing interesting unusual, inventive things that just makes you think, wow, poetry can be anything, anything at all. That's probably an exaggeration, but you'll see why I say it now. There's a poem in that same collection, uh, Passing Measures. There's a poem called Do It Again. Now, if any of you are a Beach Boy enthusiast, you might think, oh, there's a Beach Boys song called uh, Do It Again. Stick around. So the first stanza, it's a short poem, the first stanza of Do It Again is, it's automatic when I talk to old friends, the conversation turns to girls we knew when their hair was soft and... And then it ends there. Now, that is the lyric to the Beach Boys, Do It Again, verbatim. So you think, oh, hold it. What's going on here with Peter Riley's? And uh, this is not plagiarism. This is uh, this is using one piece of art to make another, just the way he did with that little watercolor at Sligo. So, in the original song, it's very hard to say these words without singing it. But I think there are rights issues, so I'm going to recite. It's automatic when I talk to old friends. The conversation turns to girls we knew when their hair was soft. And it continues, it ends on the and here, but it continues in the song. It's often long and the beach was the place to go. Now, I doubt if Peter Riley thinks the beach is the place to go unless it's some sort of geological survey that he's uh, doing for a, a pamphlet about onyx. And I doubt, in fact, I'm pretty sure he's not a Beach Boys fan. 
But what he does is he interrupts the Beach Boys with some words of his own. So I'm just going to read that chunk through. It's automatic when I talk to old friends. The conversation turns to girls we knew when their hair was soft and whiter than star, heavier than sea. Death, white as glass, pass over me. Now, forgive me for laughing, but there is something, isn't there? The idea of interrupting the Beach Boys with that whiter than star, heavier than sea, death, white as glass, pass over me. I feel that the whole section is addressed to death, which you don't often get referred to in the Beach Boys. And it's quite a contrast with soft and long and the beach was the place to go. Now, I read an interview with Peter Riley and he was asked about this poem. There is more of the poem. In fact, I'll do that bit. I'll do the end bit. It continues with a Beach boy slightly edited the last three lines. Well, I've been thinking about all the places and the Beach Boys say, we surfed and danced. Peter Riley doesn't fancy that, so that goes. So now it's, well, I've been thinking about all the places, all the faces we missed. And then that's the end of the Beach Boys contribution. But the poem ends, all the faces we missed and then. And that's it, no full stop, no, no it just ends there. And that's Peter Riley's and then at the end. Ominous especially having referred to death white as glass pass over me. And in the interview, he was asked about this poem and um, asked if it was a sort of anti-American sentiment. And I think the truth is it's a sort of an anti, I suppose, facile, hedonistic, bikinis in the sunshine lifestyle not anti that, but a comment on that. What he actually says in, in the interview when asked about it, speaking of the Beach Boys lyrics, he says the whole sequence is about ageing, which I suppose it, it is. It's about reminiscing. It's automatic when I talk to old friends, the conversation turns to girls we knew. And so he says the whole sequence is about ageing. I interrupt it because it's not saying enough. <laughs> You know what? What a great definition of poetry that would be, that poetry interrupts the modern world, if you like, because the modern world is not saying enough. I think I might stick with that as a, as a definition. And I like that, whereas the Beach Boys end the lyric, so let's get back together and do it again. So, yeah, we're a bit older, but we can still do it. Whereas Peter Riley ends, and then. And having already addressed death, then um, we kind of are fretful about what the and then might mean. And I like this poet as dark cloud image. Peter Riley spoiling the day at the beach by covering the sunshine to a certain extent. I think it's really clever and really inventive. I don't know if he meant it to be funny. He seems like a pretty serious intellectual guy. 
in in what I've read about him and what I've read of his work. But oh man, mid Beach Boys, whiter than star, heavier than sea, death white as glass, pass over me. All it needs is the harmonies, and it would be perfect, wouldn't it? Thank you so much for listening, and um, back soon. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. Oh, and why not buy my new book, How to Enjoy Poetry by Frank Skinner. P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week.